yes, we rotate 360 degrees. High, high, 360 degrees. High, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. High, The screening takes place on Thursday, November 29th at 7 p.m. at the Laguna Environmental Center at 900 Sanford Road in Santa Rosa. For more information, call 707-527-9277, extension 100. Mary Lou's Apartment is a dance and jazz concert that features an all-women band celebrating African-American musical geniuses Mary Lou Williams and Melba Liston. The concert takes place on Saturday, December 1st. at All right, everybody, welcome. You're listening to Full Circle right here on 95, uh, 94.1 KPFA, broadcasting live from Hu Chin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to you settlers as the Bay Area. This is Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced, engineered, and hosted by members of KPFA's First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I am your host tonight, Free Will and Franklin. And tonight, we're going to talk about what the United Nations has deemed the world's worst humanitarian crisis. A place where 137 children are dying every day due to starvation and disease. A place that is seeing the world's worst cholera outbreak. Um, this place is Yemen, uh, where a popular uprising from the Arab Spring has turned into a bloody, heartless conflict that has created these horrible conditions for the Yemeni people. On tonight's show, we'll get some history on the conflict, how it started, and how we got to this point. We'll also learn about who are the players in the conflict and what is the United States' role. And then we'll get an on-the-ground report from Sana'a, the Yemeni capital, to hear about what daily life is like for the people of Yemen. All that and much more tonight on Full Circle. Again, I am your host tonight, Freeville and Franklin. Stay tuned. All right, again, welcome everyone to Full Circle. I am your host tonight, Freewell and Franklin. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, the war in Yemen has become the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Um, what makes it particularly terrible to me is the fact that it's not, and this is not a natural disaster. This is not like a major storm or earthquake or tsunami. This is a 100% man-made disaster. Aerial bombardment, mass a devastation of infrastructure, and a military blockade of the main port are some of the major factors here. Now, I think it's safe to say that most Americans have no idea what is happening in Yemen, who is fighting who, who is dropping bombs on who, and also, and importantly, where does this weaponry come from? The United States. And of course, it's complex with many players. Tonight, we'll be joined by folks from the Yemeni, Alli- uh, Yemeni Alliance Committee, which was formed to help fight anti-Yemen policies and to advocate for the stability and security of Yemenis and Yemeni Americans. Later, some other guests will join us, including former Colonel Ann Wright, to give us some insight on what the U.S. military may be thinking, and Isaac Evans Franz of Action Corps will speak on the, more, on the move legislators are making to end the U.S. participation. But for now, let's welcome our guest um, from the Yemeni Alliance Committee and elsewhere. We have Muhammad, Muhammad Talib. Welcome. 
um, Bryce Drusen and Hussam Falah and uh, Muhammad Talib. He's actually the founder of UC Berkeley Yemeni Student Association and also a member of the Yemeni Alliance Committee. Sorry, I skipped that. And uh, Jehan Hakim um, from the Yemeni Alliance Committee. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And just pull your mic close and make sure when you speak, you just speak right into the microphone. So again, welcome everyone. And before we get into what's taking place today, um, this tragic devastation of the people and the places of Yemen, one of the oldest civilizations um, known, let's get a little history on how we got here to the point of U.S. military weapons being sold to one of the richest um, but cruelest kingdoms in the world and those weapons being used to devastate one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, many of us will remember the Arab Spring and the waves of people's uprisings against their various oppressive regimes that swept across North Africa in the late 2010. Well, the gains being made by some stirred the Yemeni people to react, and they too rose up against their oppressive leader, Ali Abdul Salah, um, president for more than 30 years. Um, the people made the call for him to step down. So let's start there. I have this um, wonderful crew here with me tonight, um, ready to share all this information. So let's get the answer to what was living in Yemen like for the average person um, before all this latest uprising, before the uprising, the Arab Spring happened. And what was the initial movement that had the people of Yemen in the streets protesting their government? So who would like to take that? I know you guys discussed this. Would we like to go? Um, I'll, I'll just briefly touch on it, and then my colleagues can chime in. All right, this is uh, Jehan uh, Hakim, yes. the Yemeni Alliance Committee. Yes, thank you so much for inviting us. I um, wanted to just briefly um, share that the Yemeni Alliance Committee was formed after uh, J20, also known as J uh, Doomsday. Uh, we focus on ending U.S. support to the Saudi-led war in Yemen, and we also work on repealing the ban. We're a nonpartisan group, to be clear. Uh, we side with no side, uh, except for the sovereignty of Yemen and to support political inclusive uh, resolutions for all Yemenis. To give you some background, Yemen is a country, because I know um, before the war, we have we, people don't even know where Yemen is on the map, you know. So Yemen is a country at the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula in Western Asia, also known as the Middle East. Uh, Yemen is the second largest Arab sovereign state in the peninsula. We border Oman and Saudi Arabia. It has a population of over 27 million people where uh, tribalism reigns. Um, it's really hard to capture kind of, um, you know, what is, what's go what is going on and what did go on before, but just briefly, um, you know, and to kind of piggyback off of what you said about the Arab Spring uh, in 2011, following Egypt and Tunisia's uh, government disruption during the Arab Spring, many youth and Yemenis removed from political power, wanting to challenge the status quo and depose the 30-year dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh, decided to hold a major demonstration of over 16,000 protesters on January uh, 27th in Yemen's capital, in a center coined as change the change square as demonstrations and tensions grew Saleh then announced that he would not no longer run for re-election in 2013 and that he would not pass the power to his son it's something that uh, a lot of the um, Yemeni nationals were concerned about um, so before before the civil war um, before 2014 before 2015 um, 
you know, Yemen has been for the longest colonized um, ever since the Ottoman Empire. So you have the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century on one hand, and then they're kind of slowly pushed out. Then you had the British rule. Um, so you know, obviously these, uh, this history caused um, kind of a divisive society. But for the most part, um, folks kind of uh, were courteous and kind and, and, and followed tribal um, kind of policies to lead society. Um, but uh, as tensions rose uh, after the Arab Spring um, and uh, protesters uh, were getting a little bit more aggressive, uh, that's when uh, there was a, a conversation or an internal meeting and the Gulf Co Cooperation Council, also known as the GCC, which includes Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, supported and backed by the, web, uh, by the West, stepped up efforts to negotiate a solution. And so we talked, uh, you mentioned that uh, that this was kind of um, a rising up of the Arab Spring, but how did this become into like the civil conflict, the civil war, the armed revolution that we see now? Because you said that once the protesters got a little more aggressive, so was it like peaceful protest? They had like a sit-in, they were demanding the removal, and then it kind of got a little more aggressive. How did it turn into like an armed conflict? Um, you know, demonstrations were uh, peaceful somewhat. Um, I think folks, when, when folks hear armed conflict, they think of uh, Braveheart and like people being executed in the streets. Um, you know, you have incidents and pockets of areas that were uh, more violent than others. Um, but because of the uh, Houthis, uh, when, when the Houthis gained, um, took over Sana'a, uh, the capital, that's when things uh, got really aggressive and that's when the GCC um, made a decision uh, with Hadi and Saleh and, and as well as uh, Western forces to intervene. And uh, the on-the-ground civil war, which was, you know, for the most part contained by um, internal parties, became uh, a full-out regional intervention um, slash civil war. I mean, I think folks... Uh, have d different names for it, um, but you, if you speak to Yemenis, uh, they'll no longer call it a civil war since we do have uh, many international actors that have intervened, um, the US, the UK, uh, France, and um, the Saudi-led coalition is composed of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, um, Kuwait, Bahrain, and the United Emirates, um, Sudan. So there's a lot of outside influence. It's not just an internal battle anymore. That's right. I mean, a lot of us reject the notion that it is civil, um, not only because it's not civil, but it's also no longer uh, just an internal one. So it's moved from the internal to the external, and now we're we're seeing the devastation actually with the bombardment. And I, me and um, Hussam, we talked a little bit about this upstairs. Because I was going to ask, like, who are the Houthi? Because no one really knows who they are. It's it's a it's a long ancient family. It's, it's so who is the party that's kind of at war with the government besides the outside infiltrators? Does someone want to answer that? So we could so because I think we just hear in the news like the the Houthi rebels have like launched a rocket somewhere. So I don't think anyone around here has any idea like who they are. Um, Houthis. Um are Yemenis, the, uh, they based on the north of Yemen in a city called uh, Sada. It's a family name called Houthi, uh, surname. Um, they started on 1992. They have uh, a group called Young Believers. 
and then um, their uh, 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 political uh, uh, political uh, party, uh, which called Ansar Allah, um, started on uh, in about uh, in the middle of the twenties, and then uh, they had their revolution um, September twenty first when they took over the. Uh, Government in North Yemen and Sana'a. In the ca- the capital in there. In the capital, yeah. Uh, um, and they allied with the uh, old uh, regime uh, uh, president um, Ali Abdullah Saleh. So it kind of went back and forth, wasn't it? Kind of back and forth. He was with them. He called out for people not to support him. He was kind of like back and forth for a moment, right? Yeah. He toggled back and forth, kind of like. Uh, pro-U.S. slash Saudi forces, I mean, and then back to Houthis. So it kind of depend on who had uh, more of a leverage. And some people might overplay, or maybe people don't know. But what do you feel like before we uh, move on from the history? Is like what is the role of Iran with the this battle right now? What's going on? Is there? Because I think if you listen to the media here, it's like that. Trump or the government will want to um, look more into this because they feel like that this is a big battle between the Houthi and they're controlled by, by Iran. So that's kind of what I'm saying this because this is like the only thing that I hear. You know, I don't really know. So, Well, let me go back really quickly to Houthis and kind of talk about Shia because you always oftentimes find uh, these words conflated. Um, Shia, Iran, Houthis. Um, I think many folks try to minimize the war in Yemen into a Sunni-Shia conflict or a sectarian issue. Uh, but historically, sectarianism has... Uh, been minimal. Uh, intermarriage between uh, Sunnis and Zaydis is considered routine, and until recently, Yemenis of different sects uh, prayed at the same mosques. Um, but it wasn't until geopolitics got involved, um, and and where you are hearing, um, you know, kind of these um, the, the the this rhetoric of like uh, Sunni Shia conflict, um, and then also Zaydis. Just to be clear, Zaydis are more closer closer to Sunnis sect, um, then they are, they also don't call themselves Shia. Um, so that right there is, um, is kind of an argument without teeth. Um, the role of Iran. <laughs> um, hi, this is, uh, Mohammed Talib. So in, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the, the role of Iran in all of this, um, I think this has been, uh, the most conflated talking piece from our previous and current administration. Uh, from our national security um, advisors and also from Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, is that Iran is providing the Houthis with so much support. Uh, Sure, there is communication among the groups. Um, Iranis um, actually told Houthis not to take Sana'a, not to take the capital of Yemen, uh, before they marched onto it. Um, Iranians are not training Yemenis in, in Yemen, uh, they're not bombing Saudi Arabia and the UAE on behalf of the Houthis. The support that they give to Yemen is minimal due to the geography. Uh, that argument doesn't have legs from what the reports can tell. Uh, what the U.S. and Saudis are concerned about Iran is that if they shut down the Strait of Hormuz, uh, the Strait of Hormuz is a strait between uh, the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman, um, it's uh, that's close to Iran, right? It's the world's most important oil uh, checkpoint because of the large volumes of oil uh, that flow through uh, the strait. 
So really, it's just kind of been over-exaggerated their role in it, although they may be, like you say, communication, but they're not calling the shots. That's right. I think how you, um, you know, the old saying that all roads lead to Rome. I think in this case, all roads lead to oil supply, you know, which, of course, means a lot of money. So, yeah, they're following that. All right, well... Those are the voices of my guests. We got uh, Muhammad Talib, Bruce Drusen, who hasn't spoke yet, but he's here. Uh, Hussam Falah and Jehan Hakim. They're with the Yemeni Alliance Committee. Bryce, he's with himself. He's with us. <laughs> Anyways, um, we're going to move on and take a short music break. But when we come back, we're going to hear an on-the-ground report from Aisha Juma'an. And then we'll talk about um, the devastation that's been laid upon the uh, cities and the, um, the country of Yemen and how it got that way. So, um, Steve, let's take away with that music break, and we'll be right back. everybody hello welcome back to the full circle right here on 94.1 fm that was a joyous farewell and i'm sorry maybe one of my guests know but i didn't know the artist as the writing was in a different language it was beautiful does anybody know the artist it's a yemenite singer put him on the spot put him on the spot well it's okay it was a beautiful song and if you're into it we're going to have a link on our website you can check it out kpfaapprentice.org after the show it'll be there and tonight we're going to cover, um, we're covering the war on Yemen. And before the break, we got some history and how we got to this point. And now we're going to turn our attention to life on the ground in Yemen. Right now, the war on Yemen has forced 2.9 million to flee uh, from their homes. 14.1 uh, million people don't have enough to eat. And 7 million are at risk of famine, meaning they could die any time of starvation. Uh, 4.5 million children and nursing mothers are acutely malnourished and more than 15.7 million people lack access to clean water sanitation um, because of pumps and treatment facilities have been damaged and there isn't enough fuel to run the water system um, those are some staggering numbers and we're going to learn more about how this is happening and how and why 
this has come to this. Um, before we continue with our guest here, we're going to listen to a short conversation I had on Wednesday with Aisha Juma'an, who is on the ground in Yemen. Um, Aisha started by talking about the nearly 3 million people that are currently displaced in their homeland. Yeah, there are about 8.4 million people in Yemen who are starving today. And uh, and people in Yemen, there are a lot of internally displaced people as well, that they are not in camps like you see with other wars and emergencies. Many people actually uh, go and live with other family members, uh, friends, acquaintances, and so they get observed into other families. So a family that used to support six now is um, will have 30 people in the house because they're not just observing their families, they're also observing other families that had fled the fighting, for example, in Hadeida that's going on right now. And so people are helping one another uh, with whatever they can. There are a lot of charities, including, including our organization, where we distribute food baskets, to families that sustain them for one month. Uh, the World Food Program also distributes food baskets as well to people. But that's just, it's only an emergency measure that does not deal with the cause of the problem. So the cause of there are two reasons why we have that many people. One is the war itself, but it is a blockade that's killing more people silently uh, we, we've read the report recently where people, the people that have been killed by the war, it's over 91,000 people. That does not count people who die from malnutrition. That doesn't count people who die from cancer. That doesn't count people who die from diabetes. People who now cannot afford the medicine because it's become very expensive or the food because it's become very expensive. Only about 20% of what Yemen needs is allowed in, into the country. And that's compounded. So the first year, 20% of what Yemen needs. The second year is 20%. So right now we have really uh, everything, if it's available, it's very expensive. You have people who are now selling everything in their homes, from furniture to even their books, so they can feed their families. You have people who are now selling their kidneys so they can afford food for their families. So one of the things that we need people to understand is the blockade is one of the main reasons we have such a devastation on the population and the hunger that we see. And that really needs to be lifted if we are able to save the people who are starving. There is no aid in the world. There is no aid in the world that will support a population of 29 million people. The UN reports that says that 24 million of the 29 million in Yemen today are in need of some assistance. There is no aid that can support 24 million people. They need to open the ports. They need to open the airport. Food needs to come in on a commercial basis not just aid that comes in, because that's, not, that's why we are where we are, because food, food and medicine and fuel um, are not allowed into the country freely. How are people trying to stay safe out there with 
bombs dropping. Um, you can gather in a building, but are the buildings safe? Where are you guys uh, all trying to stay safe? To be honest, there is no safe place in Yemen. There is, because we've known they have bombed hospitals. 50% of the hospitals in Yemen have either been totally damaged or partially damaged by the Saudi airstrikes. We know they have bombed funerals. We've known they have bombed every food source in Yemen had been bombed. Whether you have a chicken farm, whether you have a, a you know a cattle farm, all the food sources have deliberately been bombed. So there is no safe place in Yemen. You can be bombed in your car on the road. You can be bombed in your home. You can be bombed in the market. You can be bombed in your workplace. Radio stations and TV stations have been bombed. Even prisons have been bombed. So there is no safe place. When I heard the uh, planes uh, this morning around midnight until 3 a.m., there, there is no, there's nothing I can do. There is no safe place in Yemen. You just have to pray and hope that you wake up to the, the next morning and you're still alive. And people have resigned to that. They, they will tell you there is no place to, to hide. You just have to, to assume that that may be is your last day. And that's terrifying. Now, let me ask you, what are the, the hopes of the Yemeni people? They hope for peace. Everybody here cannot wait for this to end. They hope for the planes not to fly over them and bomb them. They hope for their airports to be open and they can travel freely. They hope for a day when they know they can wake up and they're still alive and their kids in school are still alive because they're not bombed. They hope for, like everybody else, for a, a, a dignified living. Uh, they hope that they don't get sick. We have 1.5 million cases of cholera in Yemen now. Uh, they hope that they don't need to worry about whether they're going to die because they have cholera or they're going to die because they're bombed, or because they're going to, their kids are going to die because there's a bacteria outbreak, there's a measles outbreak, you name it. They just want peace. What would you like to say to the American people who hear this story tonight and hear this show about um, the U.S. role in Yemen, and um, what would you like the American people to know? I'd like them to know that the war was announced from Washington, D.C. by the Saudi ambassador and the foreign minister. It was not announced from Riyadh. I'd like them to know that with, without the U.S. arms and the U.S. support, this war would not have happened and would not have continued. I'd like them to know that despite the fact that Congress um, the Senate and the House had voted to stop supporting the Saudi war on Yemen. The president vetoed that, and they continue to support them. And it, the people in Yemen are killed by American-made arms. Everything, and, and they will showcase it. They will showcase the bombs that's been dropped on their schools, on their places of worship, on their farms, on their funerals on their wedding, and everything says made in America. The planes that they fly over Yemen and bomb, these are American planes. 
The targets, unfortunately, are also provided by the U.S. government. The U.S. government, without the U.S. government support, this war wouldn't have happened in the first place, and this war would not have continued for over four years. And this devastation that the Yemeni people are facing is because of the U.S. support. And it is my country, it is the U.S. as my country that's doing this to the Yemeni people. And I am very upset that the country of the free, the country of the brave, the country that cares about democracy is supporting one of the most repressive regimes in the region and allowing them to commit war crimes. That's right. You heard the word war crimes. Um, Welcome back. You're listening to Full Circle coming to you from the Pacifica Radio Mothership. This is KPFA 94.1 FM, and that was the voice of Aisha Juma'an, Ph.D. and MPH, who is currently in Yemen. Aisha is also the president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, which provides relief for people in Yemen and promotes the cause of the Yemeni people through advocacy here in the U.S., And just a heads up for everybody, that was only about eight minutes of a 20-minute interview, and we will be posting the entire interview on our website um, directly after the show. And don't forget, that's kpfaapprentice.org. Well, Aisha left us a lot to talk about. Uh, There's the port blockade, which is holding up everything, the food, the medicine, supplies. Um, as we talked about earlier, half the po- uh, population is starving, uh, 14 million out of about 28, 29 million people. Um, cholera, it's the world's worst cholera epidemic. And as we just mentioned, uh, war crimes. So it's a terrible situation there. And I think we know that a lot of people, I feel like in America, they're not really understanding the depth of what's happening there. Um, what I really want to get into now is who are the purveyors of all this death and destruction? Um, battle, are there battles on the streets between government forces and the rebels? Or is this all some sort of aerial bombardment? And most importantly, I think to us here is where are these weapons coming from? And of course, what we need to talk about is what is being done to stop this. So if um, somebody could chime in here. uh what is the Saudi, uh, the UAE, and the U.S. role in these terrible conditions? Um, what role do each of them play, and who is actually dropping the bombs, and where are they actually coming from? Uh, so, like I said earlier, when the intervention became the next course of action in 2015, when it outlined uh, what happened and whom, whom it was doing, who was doing the happening. <laughs> On the eve of March 26, 2015, Saudi Arabia and its coalescing GCC partners, backed by the U.S., launched airstrikes on Yemen, abruptly escalating a civil war into a regional inferno. This coalition of nations intervened to push back against the Houthis uh, through aerial bombardment and ground troops. So what has the U.S. done? Because I think we hear from our administration is we don't have boots on the ground. We're not in active hostile, um, you know, uh, war right now. We're not in uh, active conflict. What the U.S. has done is provided logistical support targeting intelligence, and until recently, which we haven't received verification, fuel re- uh, air refueling of Saudi warplanes uh, that we sometimes co-pilot. So uh, U.S. forces are sometimes co-pilots in the warplanes that have been bombing Yemen. And mind you, um, 
Yemenis are, uh, I mean, it's, I think it's an understatement to say that uh, the people of Yemen are uh, in between a rock and a hard place because um, they are also banned. The Muslim ban is still in effect. Um, so they're banned and bombed by the U.S. Um, we're also the top arms sellers to the kingdom. So bombs that kill Yemenis are made in the U.S. of A. Companies such as Raytheon, uh, such as Lockheed Martin. Data collected recently by Al Jazeera and the Yemen Data Project has found that more than 18,000 Saudi air raids have been carried out in Yemen, with almost one-third of all bombing missions striking non-military sites. So if uh, the Saudi-led coalition is being supported and provided uh, all this intelligence support by the U.S., then why are we still... Uh, you know, bombing non-military sites. Why are we bombing school buses, hospitals, and funerals, all of which of um, are war crimes? Over 90,000 uh, Yemenis have been killed due to the violence. And that's not counting the over 85,000 children who have died due to starvation, due to the siege and the blockade. The, the people of Yemen are being starved and aid is being weaponized. So what, what does Saudi want? I think we hear that question often. Saudi really wants Yemen because uh, it's a geopolitical interest. Um, it's a, a strategic place geographically at the Horn of Africa. And if folks have heard of Bab al-Mandab, it's a strategic strait and it, it imports most of uh, the oil from across the world, um, second to uh, the Strait of Hormuz uh, in the Persian Gulf. But, uh, and Bab al-Mandab is between Somalia and Yemen. It's how oil is shipped to uh, the U.S. Um, and uh, it's a pipeline that goes to the Red Sea. Uh, and what, uh, what has caused kind of this, uh, you know, escalation and aggression is that Houthis have been trying to bomb the Saudi ports. Um, and the Houthis also have port access. So you notice that uh, the Saudi-led coalition has been airstriking and also placing blockades on areas that Houthis are occupying, um, which also obviously is causing um, uh, starvation to increase and um, the famine is um, widespread. That's good. And also, um, well, the weapons, we've been making massive sales. I was going to play the, the Trump clip of um, him with MBS there selling the weapons with his picture cards. It's ridiculous, but I see the U.S. as... Um, and according to the um, the president here, is like it's a weapons. It's keeping jobs. It's um, money coming into the U.S. coffers. But we could see that it's at this horrible price and these war crimes. And I don't want to forget that we have um, our guest on the phone, Isaac uh, Franz. Isaac, I'm missing his middle name. Evan. Isaac Evan Franz. How you doing, Isaac? Are you there? I'm here. Thank you. So I'm glad we got you on there. So um, you can hear what we've been talking about. And what we're just about to get to is that um, our own Congress and um, our government tried, uh, apparently, to block the weapon sale. You want to tell us about uh, what was done to try to block the weapon sale and what happened? Sure. So my organization, Action Corps, which started as a program of Oxfam, and has grown into a network of activists, which is independent from Oxfam. We have been organizing with an informal coalition of several different organizations that basically put pressure on Congress to pass the War Powers Resolution just a few months ago. And this was the first time that both the House and the Senate 
passed a joint resolution. It was a bipartisan resolution declaring that the war in Yemen was unconstitutional and ordering the president to stop it. Ultimately, he's ignored it, he vetoed it, and has continued with the war. This was a historic moment of putting this sort of statement out there with both bodies of Congress. And it was a, it, it, it was gr- grassroots activists like Jihan and myself and many others who around the United States organized and held rallies in front of multiple members of Congress's offices where we were able to apply effective pressure in getting them to co-sponsor this legislation and ultimately pass it. And you asked about arms sales, and this is an opportunity that we have really in July, this coming month, to effectively stop U.S. involvement in in the war by stopping the sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. You may remember that a few weeks ago, the president announced emergency, quote-unquote, emergency weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in the name of the, uh, quote-unquote, emergency with Iran. And that was completely bypassing Congress and using a loophole in legislation to avoid having to go through the normal channels of getting congressional approval. Now, Congress has really pushed back on that, but what we are looking for is a ban on weapons sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. We believe that we should not be selling bombs and missiles that are being used on civilians to these countries while this war is going on. And that's not an outlandish idea because apparently some um, nations have decided to stop um, selling weapons. Do you might know who that would be? That's correct. There have been a number of them. There have been a number of countries in Europe that have stopped their weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Well, um, Evan, uh, what, I'm blanking on your name right now because I didn't have him down. Isaac, Evans, um, Franz, uh, thank you for um, bringing us up to date on that. And you're welcome to stay on the line. We're going to continue on right now. Um, you brought us up to date on what the War Powers Resolution was and uh, the veto. And using that Emergency Power Act that he continued these weapon sales. And I'm, my mind is just wondering, like, what is his logic behind this when we finally got um, some bipartisan stuff happening here? And, um, you know, I don't have much faith in my own government, but I felt like for a second there that something happened thanks to, you, you know, all your actions and activities. And then to see, you know, that kind of veto, you know, you, you want to see a veto for something other than war crimes, destruction and death. And um, so I thank you for um, bringing that up to uh, bringing us up to speed on that. You're welcome to hang on the line. Um, I want to take a moment coming up. Uh, I'm good. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the president should have to go to Congress to get a majority vote to start a war. We shouldn't have to get a supermajority to stop an illegal war. And there is an effort within the progressive part of the House of Representatives to actually sue the president over violation of the congressional war powers. And Representative Ro Khanna of California has asked 
to lead that lawsuit in conjunction with other members of Congress and many Americans who constitutional law scholars believe would have legal standing to sue for violation of the war powers. So we're interested to see where that goes. And you know, everyday Americans around the country can call on their members of Congress to support a ban on weapons sales and also ask their members of Congress to join a lawsuit for congressional war powers. Uh, thank you, Isaac Evan France, uh, for bringing us up to date. And um, like I said, you're welcome to stay on the line. We're going to knock uh, your volume down, so um, we'll bring you back up in a few minutes. But right now, I want to, because we've been talking a lot about, um, you know, what how this got started, you know, the destruction and, you know, our almost blocking of the, the weapons and the aid. But I wanted to get an inside scoop from our next guest. Um, let's take a moment now to bring in our special guest, uh, Colonel Ann Wright. Some of you may know her name. I don't know if everyone here is familiar with Ann Wright, but she courageously resigned from her military career on the eve of the invasion of Iraq. And she now has been working in the activist community as part of Veterans for Peace. We have her on the phone. And are you there, Ann? How are you doing? Yes, I am. Thank you very much. I'm doing well tonight. Thank you for always being there um, for me, Ann, when I need to get this um, inside uh, perspective. So... Um, I just wanted to get your perspective on how the U.S. government may, may be looking at this conflict and how they may be uh, playing their hand. Um, so what do you think is in the minds of the U.S. military and our government and their um, unwavering, or at least the president's unwavering support for the Saudis? Well, yeah, it is uh, pretty astounding that uh, the president of the United States continues to support uh, the Saudis, particularly after what is a very uh, blatant uh, murder that uh, uh, the crown prince uh, precipitated with uh, the uh, uh, Turkish journalist uh, Kosoji. I mean, the, the Saudi journalist Kosoji, who was in Turkey to try to get a, a marriage license out of uh, his consulate. Uh, it's continues to do, although one could say, uh, I mean, it's no different from what we've been doing for decades. We've supported the Saudi regime. Uh, the United States has sold billions of dollars of uh, military equipment to the Saudi government. Uh, we have hundreds of thousands of contractors that are there that implement the weapon sales uh, to the Saudi government and do all the maintenance and all of the routine uh, uh, work on all these weapon systems. I mean, this has been going on for forever. So on one level, we shouldn't be shocked, but as the regime continues to do even more uh, uh, blatant violations of human rights, not only in Saudi Arabia, but of what they're doing to the people of Yemen, one would hope that at some stage our Congress would finally say, enough is enough, and really force the hand of a president, you know, whether it was Bush, Obama, or now Trump. And do you see this as a form of some sort of proxy war between Iran, uh, the U.S., and its Arab allies? Well, indeed, uh, that's the way it's, it's 
playing out now. I mean, initially, it it really was. I, my opinion is that the Iranians really had very little to do with the with the Houthis initially. Uh, but when the the Houthis were able to uh, in Yemen to mount quite a defense against what was going on uh, with the Saudi government, with the with the uh, attacks, the Saudi military, the air force was doing on uh, the Houthis, then. It um, kind of precipitated more interest by the Iranians saying, well, if these guys are holding off the Saudis, we ought to give them a little help. And I'm sure they have, but ne- not nearly to the extent that that uh, the U.S. has helped uh, the, the Saudi government with our sharing of intelligence, with our sharing of all sorts of targeting thing, with our assassin drones that we, the U.S., control and continue to kill people in Yemen. You know, I was in Yemen about five years ago, and we were there with the Code Pink Women for Peace delegation uh, to talk specifically with families who had had family members that had been assassinated, murdered, extrajudicially murdered by the United States with these drones. And at that time, we it was really hopeful in a way that uh, because there was a transitional national council was meeting that the uh, former dictator had been thrown out. And this was the opportunity for all the factions in, in Yemen to get together and talk about what a future would really look like without a dictatorship. And then then it all spiraled out of control, and the U.S. had a great deal to do with it, with its assassin drone program, with its uh, total support with for Saudi Arabia, who was going to go after the Houthis as longtime enemies, uh, and then, of course, the never-ending um, U.S. Uh, retaliation to the Iranian government for the Iranian students daring to take over the U.S. Embassy and hold hostages for 444 days. All right. We're just about out of time to have you on. And I just wanted to get one last thought. Um, Do you think that we could actually get someone um, charged with war crimes in this from the U.S.? And who would that be? Well, we haven't been able to charge anyone with war crimes on on Afghanistan, on Iraq, on Yemen. Uh, the, the, the U.S. really does not uh, hold people accountable, and I doubt if we're ever going to hold anyone accountable for, for all of the misery and, and horrific things that have happened with Yemen. I have to be, hate to be a downer on this, but our history does not show that the United States uh, holds anybody accountable for this type of thing. That's right. Um, well, thank you, Ann. That's the voice of Code Pink activist and Veterans for Peace activist Colonel Ann Wright. And thanks for that insight. We appreciate it. And, of course, we appreciate you as well and all the work you do around the world for peace. Um, thanks again for stepping up and joining me tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Ann. Um, now we're going to take another music break. And when we come back, we'll wrap up with our guests um, from the Yemeni Alliance Committee. Stay tuned. Trump, Mac, Mac, Donald Trump, Mac, Donald Trump, Mac, Mac, Donald Trump, Mac, Donald Trump, Mac, Mac, Donald Trump, Mac, Donald Trump, Mac, Mac, Donald Trump, Mac
Check out the link to that video on our website after the show, kpfaapprentice.org. Of course, this show will be archived there. Some photos of myself and our guest and the links to a lot of articles in New York Times articles. Um, a lot of reading to be done about Yemen on um, the kpfaapprentice.org website. And um, before we get ready to wrap up here, I just wanted to kind of go around the table here or get some insight. I think Bryce is going to um, get to speak here. He's been holding out, and now now it seems it's time. But we, we've we been hearing of the devastation, the destruction, um, the veto, the almost the blocking of the aid. But what is it that the, um, the average concerned Americans can do? Um, what is being done, and um, what can we do as uh, people that care about what's happening? And we'll start with Jahan. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to give an overview of what the War Powers Resolution, like what that means for folks who've never heard of the term. Uh, it is legislation that would direct the removal of United States uh, arms forces from hostilities in the Republic of Yemen that have not been authorized by Congress. So I think that's a key uh, note right there because uh, this bill would have required United States uh, President um, to uh, seek congressional approval before continuing uh, U.S. support to the Saudi-led war um, that has been going on for about four years. And I wanted to be clear that this is not a Trump war uh, because Obama okayed the intervention back in 2015. Uh, our involvement in Yemen is unconstitutional. It's unauthorized. And it 
should have stopped yesteryear. Um, and it can if our lawmakers can just uh, step up and stand on the right side of history. So our kids can look back and say, um, you know, what are what are how are we going to answer to our kids? You know what I mean? As, uh, this looks like another Vietnam, another Iraq. Uh, how often will we keep repeating history? Every attempt to address our role in the region has been maneuvered. Um, so every war powers resolution that has been introduced by either Rokana or Senator Sanders has been uh, maneuvered by the GOPs, uh, other reps, or vetoed by Trump, as we've uh, shared earlier. Um, and, and like uh, Colonel Ann said, we don't have a track record of you know, keeping ourselves accountable. Uh, and some of our law, lawmakers, unfortunately, have been okay with being complicit, okay with war crimes being committed uh, and bombs being sent over, uh, manufactured by us. So some folks, I mean, a lot of folks are always asking us, what can we do? So please write down this number. Call 202 2243124 that is the uh, dashboard for Congress and Senate you just need to put in your zip code and then you'll be transferred to your lawmaker uh, we would like folks to call their lawmakers urge them to withdraw military support to the Saudi-led coalition because without our support uh, the Saudi-led coalition won't have the same force and might that it does there's also an opportunity like Isaac mentioned earlier for Congress to step up and stop the uh, arms sales uh, and that's happening in July you know again call 202-224-3121 urge your lawmakers to support the banning of arms to the Saudi-led coalition that's been bombing Yemen um, and uh, the last piece um, of course there's not a last last piece we're always uh, advocating organizing and mobilizing and protesting um, but on a legislative end, uh, we've been uh, trying to push for Speaker of the House Pelosi and other reps to lead a lawsuit against this administration for vetoing the War Powers Resolution. Um, and and I just want to pass it over to Bryce real quick um, because, um, you know, in addition to kind of some of the things that I mentioned of what we can do, um, Bryce took it upon himself a couple of months ago to, um, you know, um, uh, what is it called? Kind of like um, an act of solidarity, you know? Um, actually, I found out about it by a reporter from the Metro. Um, Bryce, a couple of months ago, was uh, totally uh, frustrated with what is happening. And um, he went to Lockheed Martin's office in Palo Alto and did something very creative. Bryce, please share. What's up, Bryce? What did you do? Uh, so pretty much I uh, just spray painted the word Yemen over one of their like large signs as you're uh, walking up to the building. And I also spray painted uh, the date uh, August 9th, 2018 on the sidewalks. Uh, that was the date when a uh, Lockheed Martin made bomb fell on a school bus in Yemen. The kids were on a field trip. Oh yeah, I've seen that. It was horrible. Yeah, and so um, it was like 40 dead kids, other, you know, chaperones, parents. Uh, so yeah, so I, I spray painted, uh, their, uh, building and sign and then I posted it to social media and, um, it got some traction and, uh, I ended up getting arrested, uh, which was expected if I'm going to vandalize a building and then post it on social media. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was pretty much it. And, um, putting it on social media is just kind of, uh, I grew up in Palo Alto, so, you know, I know, knew about the war in Yemen for a couple years, and I knew Lockheed was involved, and 
I always knew they had a, a big facility in Sunnyvale. And when I found out they had an office in Palo Alto, it kind of became very personal for me because it just became, it's just like really embarrassing that we have the, this company that is just totally, I mean, let's be honest, these people would sell weapons to North Korea if it was okay, right? I mean, they're just completely um, just amoral. And I just kind of felt like an obligation, you know, where I felt I was in a position to to do something. And, yeah. I feel like for uh, the U.S., it's all about the dollar. And, unfortunately, we're about out of time. But I want to um, say a big thank you to my guest, uh, Bryce Drusen, whose voice you just heard, uh, Muhammad Talib, Hassam Falah, and... Jehan Hakim um, of the Yemeni Alliance Committee and also the Berkeley uh, Student Association. That was uh, Mohammed. And um, a quick programming note um, before we go, I want to let our listeners know that there will be a demonstration tomorrow at Lake Merritt in solidarity with Sudan and the Million Strong March. People will be gathering at Lake Merritt, 500 Bellevue Avenue. 1 to 5 p.m. just in case you're interested. And as we said, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Tune in next week for a special tribute to Aretha Franklin brought to you by Stevie G, who's over there on the controls. Our executive producer is Miss M right here. Our technical director is myself, Rebone Franklin. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And again, I've been your host, Free Will and Franklin. Um, big shout out to Stevie G on the board and technical assistance from Sharon Peterson and KC again. Thank you for listening tonight, and um, let's bring peace to Yemen. Stay tuned now for La Onda Bajita. <laughs>